Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And as you turn there, we have been dealing with the book of Hebrews for several weeks. It's a very unique book. It's also a book that's difficult to understand. And it's not given to little bitty small verses to deal with, except I'm going to deal with just two today. It's better to take it in big chunks so that you can understand uh, the overall content and context of the sermon. Uh, We really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It doesn't have the normal introduction. Uh, We really don't know who it's written to. It doesn't have to a city or a particular area or region. But we do know the reason for which it was written. The book was written that these Jewish Christians wouldn't fall away. Uh, The Christian faith had spread first among the Jews. They had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But with that believing came a cost. There was persecution and unpopularity and all sorts of things, imprisonment that happened. And so some of these Jewish Christians were wavering and they were thinking about going back to Judaism, leaving Jesus and going back to the shadows of the Old Testament. And so the writer to Hebrews writes this letter, and what he tells them is this, is Jesus is better, that all the Old Testament figures point to Jesus. Jesus is better than the angels you worship, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than all the priests, Jesus is better than all the kings, Jesus is better than all the prophets. And if you leave Jesus, then you have left everything. And so the The letter has a pastoral exhortation to it, is fix your eyes on Jesus. And yet, uh, we don't see Jesus, but we hear Jesus. And so we have only two verses. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It says, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, and everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him whom we must give an account. That is God's Word to God's people. Let's pray. Father, we believe that the Word of God is inspired. It's very essence is as God breathed. And would you, O Holy Spirit, come and breathe into us an understanding of that word that you inspired so long ago, that we might hear and heed the gospel, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Everybody has a favorite historical figure, I would guess. Uh, Without a doubt, mine would be Martin Luther. And the reason it probably would be Martin Luther is one of my favorite teachers uh, taught us so much about Martin Luther. He became one of my people that I go to and read about all the time. And you know Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the one who nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in uh, October 31, 1517, and thereby started the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther nailed those 95 statements about the church on the door of the church, what he was asking the church to do was to repent, 
to consider some of the things they were doing that weren't bound to Scripture and to change and make sure Scripture was your only guide and guard and practice. Now, we have in uh, church history, we realize in the Reformation, there were five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Christos, Sola Deo Gloria, and so we and solo Christos. That's a fancy way of saying only the scriptures, only by grace, only by faith, only by Christ, and only to the glory of God. But the one I want you to focus on is only by the Word of God. Now Martin Luther was a person who started the Reformation and he got lots of praise, lots of admiration for his courage and his conviction, for the way he stood up and says when the church asked him to recant, he says, God, so help me God, I can stand, I can do no other. But yet when Martin Luther was given praise for starting the Protestant Reformation, he had one comment. I did nothing, the Word did it all. I just preached the Word of God. And that's what Martin Luther did. And because of God's providence, the printing press was invented and books were able to be, his sermons and his books were able to be published in mass and distributed to the people, the Protestant Reformation spread like wildfire. But all the credit went to the Word of God. That's what this passage is talking about today. Do you understand the power, penetration, and the revelation that the Word of God has in our lives? And so we want to look at this passage. We want to look at three headings. The living Word of God. The living and active Word of God. The powerful and penetrating Word of God. And the revealing and convicting Word of God. But first, let's look at this the Word of God is living and active. We talk about the living Word of God. What does that mean? Well, the obvious thing it means is not dead. It has a power of its own to it. It's different and unique than all other books. It is not just a book of religious activity over the years. It is not a collection of stories going back to creation and Noah's Ark and dividing of the Red Sea and the sun standing still and the axe head floating and Jesus raising Lazarus and Zacchaeus climbing up the tree and, you know, and all the stories collected and we treat them like fables and things like that. It's more than that. It's more than all the laws that tell us how to live, you know, that we should not covet and we should not steal and kill and, and all the things that we shouldn't do. The Bible is not just a religious textbook. The Bible is not man's attempt to find God. That's what a lot of people think. It's really God's effort at seeking man. It's God's Word. It's God's Word. When you say that, you don't want to take away from the idea it's also the Word of man. That God moved men to write it with an infallible pen. That God moved Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and Paul, and Peter, and James, and all of those to write the Word of God, but they wrote them with their own personalities and their own vocabulary. 
they have their fingerprints on them. You can, you can read something and tell it's from John because his emphasis is on love. Or you can read it and tell it's something about Paul because of his, his emphasis on justification by faith. And you can tell it's James because it's his emphasis on works, meaning that your faith has to be active. Men wrote it, but God superintended the writing so that when they wrote, they wrote the very words of God. You say, well, that's kind of incomprehensible. You got it. It's just like the hypostatic union. I hear some of you thinking that right now. I know Scott's thinking about the hypostatic union right now. The hypostatic union is how can God be, in Jesus Christ, be God and man. He's fully God and He's fully man. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. And just like God is in Jesus is fully God and fully man, this is the Word of God and the Word of man. But God has inspired it. God has breathed it so that it is written, it is written as the Word of God. When the Bible was translated, uh, it undergoes translation about every year we come up with a new translation. I can remember one time in seminary, I was really one of those guys that wanted to make sure I had the most accurate Bible translation, you know? I wanted to be I wanted to have the one that was closest to the Greek and the Hebrew. So I raised my hand in class and asked Dr. Davis. I go, Dr. Davis, what's the best translation? And I remember him saying his clear as bell. He said, The one you'll read. He said, They all have strengths, they all have weaknesses. The one you read is the best one. But the way that the Bible is translated is that you have people that are scholars that are know Greek and Hebrew, and they get the text, the Greek and Hebrew, the original text, and they translate it as accurately as they can. And there was a guy by the name of Ru, R-I-E-U, I guess that's how you say it. He was invited to be involved in a Bible translation. He was not a believer, and yet he was a Greek scholar. And so when he was in the middle of, uh, when they finished, J.B. Phillips, who wrote Your God's Too Small, asked him this, asked Rue this, did you get the feeling that the whole material is extraordinarily alive? And Rue responded, I got the deepest feeling that I possibly could have expected. It changed me. My work changed me. And I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of God and man. They are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. This unbeliever was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was God's Word. But when we talk about living, we mean more than just, you know, it's pulsating with life. We mean that it makes us alive. It makes us go from being dead to being people that are alive in the Spirit. The Bible says this, For you have been born again, that's a word that makes you think of Jimmy Carter and the, that when it was so popular, remember? For you have been born again, not with perishable seed, but imperishable seed, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, 
and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So you have the living word of God causes us to be alive. To be spiritually alive, to be born again, to be recreated, to be transformed, to have our hearts changed, our, our wills renewed, our eyes open. The Bible does something to it. It makes us living beings in the truest sense of the word, spiritually. And when we read the Bible, we confront God. We confront God. John Frame says it like this, When we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. His Word indeed is His personal presence. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. God's presence is actually encountered in His Word. This means it's His personal living Word. And the idea of living means it's energetic uh, and active. The Word does something. It doesn't just convert you. It, think of what the Word does. The Word can comfort you and convict you. It can instruct you. It can encourage you. It can exhort you. It can guide you. It can uh, strengthen you. It can give you hope. It, it can do anything because as you put it into your life, it does something. It has its innate ability to transform and renew. And sometimes it doesn't do that right away. You all know John Newton's story. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a wretch. He was a man who his mother died when he was six. Remember that. His mother died when he was six. In his early teens, he joined the Navy. And he left the Navy. I guess he deserted the Navy. And because of his nautical skills, he got on with a merchant ship and he began to be involved in slave trading. And he not only got involved in slave trading, he got involved in being a slave. One time he was bought and sold as a slave until he got away. But he, he was on a ship one time and the captain of the ship uh, trusted him more than he should have and he found the he found the alcohol. He found the liquor. And he got all, as they say, liquored up. And he was so drunk, John Newton was so drunk, he fell into the sea. And instead of letting him perish and drown in the sea, you know what happened. His, his shipmates harpooned him right in, the, right in the thigh and brought him in like a fish. But one day he was in the middle of a the ocean in the middle of a storm and he was sure that they were going to going to sink and he began to think about the verses that his mother taught him verses he learned before he was six and on that day they came back and brought to mind where eternal life was and he was converted by verses he had hid in his heart years ago I know that some of you parents are so frustrated trying to get your children to learn verses, train up the child, trying to get them to memorize the truths of God's Word. Don't give up. And if you're not able or 
don't like the method that we use with training for child, come up with your own, but get the Word of God in them. Get the Gospel in them. Tell them about who God is and who they are and how they can be right with Him and how they ought to live and what happens when they die. And God's Word will not return to Him void. The second thing is not only is it God's Word living, but it's God's Word and it's powerful. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to cut between the uh, the bone and the sinew and the soul and the spirit. And it judges the hearts and minds of all God's people. But the image is it's a sword. What's your idea of a sword? You know, you think of these pirates. They have these great big swords, you know, and they get on there and they swing them in there and things like that. Or you think about the royal army and they have these long, you know, beautiful swords. And both of those ideas are, are not the idea mentioned here. This mentions a small dagger. A small dagger that came to a point that was sharp on both ends and it was used specifically for hand-to-hand combat. And it was used so that you could get through his, his leather uh, chest plate or whatever he had or get between that and the one in the back and you could jab it into his vital organs. So this dagger was able, you were able to get to the heart of the matter. And that's the image that he uses in this passage. That it judges the heart and the attitudes, the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's able to separate the soul and the spirit. It's not, we're not making a statement about the soul and the spirit, but things that you can't separate are the bone and the marrow can you have a knife you know your knife hits the bone it's he's talking about is able to separate things that are hard to separate impossible to separate the bible the word of god can do it and he says it not only separates but it judges and that word in the greek is a critique christos christos it means a critic the Word of God is able to critique us. It not only tells us about God, it tells us about us. We get to know our heart, our mind, our attitude. When you read the Bible, James calls it a mirror. He uh, calls it a mirror so that you can see your flaws. Now, what do you do in a mirror? Well, you make sure you're, everything's right before you go out in public. The past, I guess, four out of the last four or five weeks, I've not done a good job looking in the mirror. Two different people have come and gotten shaving cream off my ear. You know, the reason I look in the mirror is to get it off myself, you know. Uh, And I thought, how good it is that I have ladies that are caring enough that I not get in the pulpit with shaving cream or Cool Whip, whatever it might be, you know. But the Bible does that to you. You read it and you go, Oh, I I didn't realize I was doing that. I didn't realize that attitude was there. I didn't realize I shouldn't have said that. I didn't realize I shouldn't have gone there or done that or whatever. There's a passage in Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul talks about the Word of God. And he says this, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. You remember what Paul's talking about. Paul thought that he had done everything right. He was blameless. That he had kept the law from his youth up. And then he gets around somebody who says, well, have you looked at the the commandment to covet? Do you have any desires that are improper? Do you have any envy or jealousy towards your neighbor? Do you want things more than you ought to want things so that they dominate your life? And he began to say, I not only covet, I see my coveting everywhere. And that's what the Bible does. It, it, it reveals to us our flaws, our sins, so that we can go to Christ for forgiveness. When we talk about the law of God, most of you probably think of the Old Testament laws, dietary laws, ceremonial law, or maybe even the Ten Commandments. But when I talk about the uses of the law, what I'm talking about is the Word of God in a broader sense. And every commandment's really a law. Every principle's a law. And the purpose of the law of God is this. It restrains sin. It doesn't eliminate sin. It restrains sin. If you see a sign that says, no dumping, what's going to be happening there? Dumping. But it's going to keep law-abiding people from dumping, you know. We'll go there and we won't dump, although everybody else is dumped. But the law is is designed to restrain sin. It's also designed to reveal sin. To reveal sin to us. So that we would see that we need a Savior. Uh, The Bible teaches us that the law is a tutor and the image is as a tutor that takes us by our, the hand and says, okay, you are a sinner, and as a sinner you deserve this wrath and punishment of God. And in order for you not to have the wrath and curse of God fall upon you, it has to fall upon Jesus. And so the law reveals your sin so that you can go to Jesus for forgiveness. And then the law becomes your guide so that you know how and how to walk and how to go about a godly lifestyle. But the Word of God is powerful. You know the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was instrumental in the Great Awakening, a very powerful preacher. And like every preacher, he had his uh, emphasis on different words and he had his facial expressions and maybe the way he used his hands and things like that. But there was a group called the Hellfire Club. And you can imagine just what they were by their name. And what they did was they followed Whitfield around and mocked him. Can you imagine being so callous and so hard-hearted that you just not only didn't believe the gospel, you wanted to keep anybody else from believing the gospel. And there was this one guy in the group called Mr. Thorpe. And Mr. Thorpe was very good at getting all his hand gestures and saying the words like Whitfield said the words. And one day while he was saying the very verses of God, they penetrated his heart. And Mr. Thorpe was converted 
And in his converted state, he became one of the leading religious figures in Bristol, England. The Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is revealing. It's convicting. Nothing, nothing can be hidden from its sight. Nothing in all creation is hidden from the sight of God. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Every word is important in that sentence. Nothing is hidden. What do you think about when you think about hiding, keeping somebody from seeing, keeping God from seeing? And you remember Adam and Eve, and when they sinned, they were, they were naked. Before they sinned, they were naked and unashamed of that nakedness. They lived in the garden. And then after they sinned, something happened, and they, they developed fig leaves to hide behind, and they hid not only from each other, but they hid from God. And what did God do? God came to them in the Garden of Eden and said, Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Because you cannot hide from the eyes of God. Another illustration would be the story of Achan in the Old Testament. When they entered into the promised land and they went into Jericho. And one of the things that God had said when you go into Jericho, you don't take anything. Doesn't matter what you see that's, that you covet or like, you don't take anything. And, and Achan saw this, did I say Caleb? Achan saw this devoted thing and he saw it and he coveted it and he wanted it and he stole it and he hid it. That's the verbs in that sentence. He coveted, he stole it, and he hid it. And then they went to battle, the next battle was the battle of Ai. And it was like a warm-up game. I mean, it was like playing, you know, like old Mr. State playing Benoit Outing Club. You know, it just wasn't, they were supposed to win easily. And they got defeated. And they, what's wrong? And God said, there's sin in the camp. And so they began to cast lots. And when they cast lots, I mean, the odds were like one in a million. The lots came out to Achan. And Achan had hid that devoted thing under the rug in his tent. And God knew it. Everything is hidden and laid bare before the eyes of God. Laid bare. Talking about naked. Talking about Adam and Eve again. And then it says, and to the one that you'll have to give an account. It talks about our words and actions that we will have to answer for on the day of judgment. Y'all remember John Blanchard when he came here? He was an English fellow. He was really a powerful speaker. And he invited us to have these home Bible studies and he would come and he'd be evangelistic. And So Brad Hovius had become a Christian. Lawrence, you remember that. He had become a Christian. And Brad Hovius said, well, I'll have one of those luncheons over at the athletic building and invite all the coaches and I don't know why I thought of this this week, but John Blanchard said, okay. He got up there and he said, let's say I had a machine and somebody comes up here and this machine, I put it on their head and it's able to show every thought they've ever had and every deed they've ever done and every word they've ever said. And somebody got up and started leaving and John Blanchard said, I don't have one, by the way. And... uh but he think he was using this very passage. But there's one other word in there. It says it's laid bare 
before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Laid bare is a very interesting but important word. If you look at it in the Greek, it, it, it's built around the word trachea. I can't pronounce the Greek word, but it's built around the word trachea. And so there are three different ideas about what it means. One is that it's a, a wrestling hole that you get on somebody and you cut off their windpipe and you can eventually not only win the match, but you can kill somebody. So that might be the image. Or the image might be uh, that you have a person who is exposed in some way. Their neck is exposed and the idea is like an animal that's going to be slain. I'm not going to go into the detail because children are here. You would pull back their head and their, their neck would be exposed so that you could make the sacrifice. But the third image is that you would put a dagger, which is probably, I think, the definition. You'd put a dagger somehow under the criminal's neck. And you would keep that dagger there so that when they were going to be executed... They had to look at their accusers. They couldn't hang their head in shame. They had to face people that they knew and loved. Very cruel thing. So why is this placed here? Why is right here in this middle of this chapter, why is this place here, this dealing with the Word of God and this sharper than any two-edged sword and penetrating and judging our thoughts and our hearts and laying us bare and making us face up to our shame. Because these are Jewish Christians. And Jewish Christians that were tempted to leave would say, I've got to make a sacrifice. I've got to find a high priest. And what the next chapter is going to see is you do have a high priest. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus was naked and ashamed on the cross as they cast lots for his clothes. And Jesus did have the sword stabbed in him to make sure he was dead. And Jesus had to face all the people as he was not only had his face lifted up, but he was lifted up high. And why did he do that? Because he was your high priest. And he's telling these Jewish people, if you leave Jesus... There's nowhere to go. Who else is going to pay for your sin? Who's going to take your punishment? There's nowhere to go but Jesus. Because He has the words of life. And He is life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the fact that we know and understand the Gospel. Thank You that, Lord Jesus, You loved us enough that You were willing to lay down Your life that we might have life itself that by Your blood we're cleansed, by faith we have hope in the eternal life offered to us in Christ. So help us to have a uh, relationship with this living Word daily that it might transform and renew our lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.